1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I am so excited that today we're going to be talking with Joel Rosenberg. His latest, this is a nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. He, uh, In the book, uh, chronicles conversations he's had with the leaders in uh, Middle Eastern countries that might surprise you. We'll talk with him beginning at the uh, second half of this hour. And I think we're going to straddle into the second hour of the program as well. Joel Rosenberg joining us later this hour. Well, the big news story, President Joe Biden just a short time ago announced that all employees, all employers, rather, with more than 100 workers will be forced to require coronavirus vaccinations or test their employees on a weekly basis. The mandate will be announced or was announced this afternoon, um, expected to affect as many as 100 million Americans. You want to work? Your employer has more than 100 uh, employees. You're going to have to get the vaccine, the president says, or will have to be tested Regularly, weekly, in fact, well, the expansion rules uh, mandate that all employers with more than 100 workers require them to be vaccinated or a test for the virus weekly, affecting about 80 million Americans and roughly 17 million workers at health facilities that receive federal Medicare or Medicaid also will have to be fully vaccinated, according to the president. He said uh, he will have O.H.O.S.H.A. make a rule requiring employees of companies to be tested. Companies uh, will have to pay for the testing. But they can pass the cost on to employees. So this mandate is not going to be financed by the federal government. The weight of it, not only doing the testing, but the cost of it will be borne by these companies. The president also plans to sign an executive order to require vaccination for employees of the executive branch and contractors who do business with the federal government. Contractors. Uh, with no option to test instead. So if you are a contractor with the federal government, you must be vaccinated or you will no longer be used. There's no option for a test. That covers several million more workers. Well, in addition to the vaccination requirements, King Biden is moving to double federal fines for airline passengers who refuse to wear masks on flights or to maintain face covering requirements on federal property in accordance with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines. Now, the rule would also require that large companies provide paid time off for vaccination. So you're going to have to. Uh, absorb that cost as well, which the president says, or excuse me, King Biden says you can pass on to your employees. According to Forbes, businesses that refuse to comply with the mandate will open themselves up to a hefty fine of nearly up to a nearly $14,000 per violation. I don't know if that's per day, per employee, but $14,000 per violation. In July, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters that a federal vaccine mandate was not the role of the federal government. Well, she was right. It still isn't the role of the federal government. And yet, here we are. We'll talk more on that in a future program. Meanwhile, Taliban officials have reportedly agreed to allow 200 Americans U.S. permanent residents and holders of other Western passports to depart the country on chartered flights today, according to several reports. The Taliban uh, agreed to allow 200 Americans. Thank you, Taliban. The U.S. says while groveling a U.S. official reportedly told Reuters that the group is expected to leave from Kabul after U.S. specials uh, representative for Afghanistan reconciliation, Zalami uh, Kalalized or something very like that, urged the Taliban to allow the exit. The first large scale departure of Americans from Afghanistan since the U.S. ended its withdrawal from the country on the 31st of August. And of course, we are now beholden to the the Taliban out of the kindness of their hearts to allow this to happen. Well, the Associated Press reported that two Gatari officials say they expect 100 to 150 Americans to depart from Kabul's airport on a or I'm not sure how you pronounce um, that particular version, that iteration of the word, uh, from that flight that had delivered humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. Well, the official told the Wall Street Journal that the flight was not an evacuation flight, Uh, as all of the passengers hold foreign passports and, if required, visas for their destinations and have been ticketed by the airline. The reports come after the Taliban had been in a standoff with organizers of several charter planes who were attempting to evacuate Americans and at-risk Afghans from an airport in the southern city of Mazar-e-Sharif. The Taliban claimed that they would let passengers with valid Travel documents, by their definition, leave, but that they were preventing the planes from evacuating several hundred people because many of those at the Northern Airport didn't have the required papers. And again, that's their assessment. What was acceptable to them? U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said Tuesday the U.S. was in communication with the Taliban looking to end the standoff over the charter flights at the Northern Airport. We've been assured all American citizens and Afghan citizens with valid travel documents will be allowed to leave, he said. So we are uh, hoping that the Taliban lives up to its promises which would be out of character. And Jin Saki, in a press conference earlier today, suggested that they behaved rather businesslike in their dealings with the U.S. and Americans trying to leave the country. This days before the 20th anniversary of 9/11, 2001, and a much stronger Taliban. Well, Anthony Blinken is being blasted over the Afghan FU, uh, f. Evacuees being allowed to hire Uber to leave U.S. military bases. Now, part of the reason for that is the vetting process was not sufficient in Afghanistan. A Tennessee Republican who is also an Iraq uh, and Afghanistan war uh, veteran sent a letter to the State Department. Um, this week, demanding answers after a source informed his office that evacuees—see, I can say the word—being held at a Virginia military base have had free reign of the campus and have allegedly been leaving the base using ride-hauling, uh, ride-sharing apps without restraint from officials. Now, again, the concern is we don't know who many of the people are. Those who are here, uh, according to the uh, the standards that were set by the U.S. government. Absolutely, they belong here, but we don't know how many terrorists might have infiltrated those flights. U.S. Representative Mark Green, who represents part of uh, Middle Tennessee, exclusively told the Ingram Angle on Wednesday about his letter addressed to the Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken, after a source with knowledge of the situation made the allegations to his office. Well, Green wrote to Blinken asking for information regarding allegations that not fully vetted Afghan evacuees Staying at Fort Pickett have basically um, had free reign of the complex and have even been allowed to leave despite not having completed the vetting process. The lawmaker told um, uh, Laura Ingram at the issue uh, uh, that the issues are uh, happening elsewhere um, uh, than just Fort Pickett. In other developments, a GOP letter to President Biden flags Afghan evacuees rushed and uh, incomplete vetting. Hannity blasted uh, Obama and Biden for freeing new Taliban leaders in the 2014 Bo Bergdahl exchange. Afghanistan's acting prime minister calls on those who worked alongside the U.S. to return. I mean, the Taliban is just being very welcoming here. General um, Petraeus says Afghanistan is facing a very uncertain future after the U.S. exit. Kellyanne Conway and Sean Spicer are firing back after the president booted the Trump appointees from military panels. President Biden is facing backlash after asking for resignations from multiple members of the military academy's advisory boards who were appointed by former President Donald Trump. I'm not resigning, but you should. Kellyanne Conway, a member of the Board of Visitors to the U.S. Air Force Academy, who served as a senior advisor to Trump, wrote to Biden following the demand. Conway wasn't the only Trump appointee to refuse to resign amid the Biden demand. Russ Voigt, former director of the Office of Management and Budget, flatly saying no and arguing that appointees are selected to serve three year terms. The move was also blasted by former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, who serves on the board of visitors to the Naval Academy. Instead of focusing on the stranded Americans left in Afghanistan, President Biden is trying to terminate the Trump appointees to the National Academy, West Point and Air Force Academy, Spicer said on Wednesday. In other developments, Biden names three picks for the Ninth Circuit and five for other courts, stressing diversity. We're going to take a break. We'll continue taking a look at some of the day's news. Also, looking forward to a conversation with Joel Rosenberg, his latest nonfiction work, Enemies and Allies. Absolutely fascinating. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, anticipating a long conversation with Joel Rosenberg, author of uh, his latest book, Enemies and Allies. That's coming up in our next couple of well, next several segments, perhaps. Well, Curtis Yarvin says the executive branch's decentralized deep state is in charge while voters think the president is. The New York Times hasn't updated Biden's latest poll numbers, that page, since May. That's May. <laughs> This is September, by the way. CIA operatives who led the charge in Afghanistan feel Biden's withdrawal was and is being catastrophically mismanaged. In other developments, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is back in the headlines. She's being mocked for using the term menstruating person to describe women in an interview. Because you can't just say woman. That's so offensive. You need to put a little, you know, trigger warning there. A Wall Street Journal columnist calls out to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other liberals for ignoring real structural racism in schools. AOC suggests that uh, uh, Manchin is the uh, is to blame for the New York City flood deaths. Apparently, he's responsible for the uh, the storm. Meanwhile, Portland City Mayor Wheeler used a hands-off approach August 22nd when groups of armed protesters clashed in the city. But on Wednesday, the mayor, he admitted it was, well, not the right strategy. Well, it's a bit late, but I guess it's a good thing now. It's clear, based on public outcry, on the media outcry, on the national front, that that strategy was not the right strategy. So he's basing this on public opinion rather than whether or not the strategy itself was flawed. Wheeler said during a Portland City Council meeting, according to the Associated Press, I think we can all acknowledge that. He added, I take full responsibility for it. He said Portland was still trying to find the right recipe for handling riots. I don't think there was a recipe search. I think we had the cookbook, we had the recipe, the ingredients were in place. He just chose not to follow it. Uh, seeking a solution somewhere between an overwhelming police presence and restrained law enforcement, the AP reported. Well, State lawmakers representing the northeast section of the city spoke out against the decision to keep police from intervening in the clash between crowds from the uh, political left and right. Local residents also claimed that uh, they felt terrorized and abandoned as rioters in helmets and gas masks and some armed with baseball bats and paintball guns confronted each other. A spokesperson for the Portland Police Bureau said authorities monitoring the uh, clash from an airplane. Uh, City officials warned the public in advance that police would not be intervening in the protest as a reaction to claims that police presence exacerbated crowd tension. Wheeler claimed immediately afterward that the strategy was a success. He now admits it wasn't with few reports of harm to the broader community or to property. A rather interesting position he has now taken. Well, President Biden's, uh, uh, Approval numbers have dipped below 40 percent. We'll tell you more about that in a few moments. Derek Jeter's daughters stole the show at his Hall of Fame induction. And a Texas man gets an execution delay over a pastor's touch request. He's requesting to lay hands on the condemned man before his execution. George Gascon, the liberal L.A. County D.A., is facing a defamation lawsuit by a deputy. And Oscar De La Hoya says he's out of the hospital after a bout with the coronavirus. The IRS is extending tax relief for those um, relief rather for those impacted by Hurricane Ida in New York and New Jersey. And Microsoft is warning Azure customers of a flaw that could have permitted hackers access to their information. U.S. economic growth is slowed as the uh, Delta variant hampered uh, demand. And Larry Kudlow says President Biden has given the terrorists a homeland. Bill Gates' investment firm plans to take control of the Four Seasons in a two-point. Two, um, one billion dollar deal. Just small change, I suppose. Well, as I mentioned, the president's approval numbers have dipped below forty percent. A U. Gov. slash Economist poll has Biden uh, his approvals down to thirty nine percent, and he's underwater by double digits in some key swing states, including Georgia, where there is a Senate election in twenty twenty two, and Biden is underwater by fifteen points. Rich Lowry uh, Lowry says he hasn't shown a hint of doubt or regret. The notion of leaving Afghanistan is uh, popular in theory. The way Biden did it is radioactive in practice the white house may tell itself that biden's decision will come to um, to seem uh Farsighted, and it's possible that the harmful political effect will wear off over time, leaving Americans behind in a foreign country after an enemy of the United States swept into power and chased us out with our tails between our legs, though, is not likely to be forgotten. Certainly not in 2022 or 2024, if ever. The prime directive for any president is, to the extent possible, to seem in control. Biden failed, uh, failed, rather, this test repeatedly during the evacuation crisis. Events moved faster than he did, and his rationales for what was happening had to be constantly revived uh, until he settled on the explanation that it is impossible to end any war in good order. Well, China is considering occupation of the former U.S. air base at Bagram. The current consideration in Beijing is not for any pending movements, rather, a potential deployment as long as two years from now, the source said. And it would not encompass taking over the. Uh, uh, the base, but rather sending personnel and supplies at the invitation of the government in Kabul, and certainly after the Taliban secures its rule. In addition to expanding its regional influence, Beijing's potential plan for Bagram would also amount to a devastating blow to the image of the U.S., which increasingly considers China its most pressing and challenging global threat. Keith McCarthy points out that your tax dollars funded construction of the Bagram air base, and for 20 years our troops sacrificed to defend it. Then the president abandoned it and our allies in the middle of the night. Now China is reportedly looking to exploit his failure. While well, the Biden administration plans to sue Texas over its abortion law. The Justice Department will lead the charge. The president believes he may have found his Afghanistan distraction. The story notes the Biden administration has faced pressure from Democrats and abortion rights groups to take action to stop the Texas restrictions after the Supreme Court allowed them to take effect. Dr. Albert Moeller runs through the many different faces Biden has put on over the years when discussing abortion, beginning with life begins at conception. Los Angeles will mandate vaccines for all students 12 and older because the teachers union is insisting on it. The board is expected to pass the measure today. This will mostly affect black students as the black population in Los Angeles is barely 50 percent vaccinated, according to L.A. County. A Portland uh, school university professor has resigned over progressive demands in his rather thoughtful letter to the provost, philosophy professor Peter Boghassian. He explains, I never once believed, nor do I now, that the purpose of instruction was to lead my students to a particular conclusion. Rather, I sought to create the conditions for rigorous thought to help them gain the tools to hunt and furrow for their own conclusions. This is why I became a teacher and why I love teaching. But brick by brick, the university has made this kind of intellectual exploration impossible it has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into a social justice factory whose only inputs were race gender and victimhood and whose only outputs were grievance and division mm. well the white woman in a gorilla costume threw eggs at larry elder the black candidate trying to unseat the current governor of california barely a word from the liberal media because larry elder doesn't fit the profile of an acceptable black man And then she and one of her accomplices attacked, uh, attacked rather a man who defended him. Candace Owens rightly points out that a white woman wearing a monkey mask, throwing an egg at a black man walking down the street. Pretty sure this might be a hate crime. But again, no interest here. Nothing to see. He's a Republican. He's a conservative. (sighs) President Biden is set to announce that federal employees will be required to be fully vaccinated against the coronavirus during an address to the nation, which he gave just a short time ago. That extends to contractors, federal employees and others. You might want to check whether or not it applies to you and what your future employment looks like. And by the way, business owners are required to administer the test uh, to maintain the standard set by the president and to absorb the cost, passing it on to their employees. Hmm. Well, Constitution Day uh, isn't is until next Friday, but the woke supremacists at the National Archives just couldn't wait to slap a trigger alert on that one-of-a-kind, world-changing document. Harmful language alert. See NARA's statement of potentially harmful language. Well, that's the language now appearing above the online version of the U.S. Constitution at the National Archives Records Administration. Same with that other offensive piece of parchment, the Declaration of Independence. Click on the accompanying link to either of them and you'll be taken to a page that apologizes to the handful of snowflakes who might have triggered, been triggered by the language and may be harmful or difficult to view or that may reflect outdated, biased, offensive and possibly violent views and opinions. So there you have it. The founding documents, which um, African-Americans and other minorities tethered their future hopes uh, in the republic on rejoiced over argued on behalf of now just too much to take wow hey you're listening to the georgine rice show up next joel rosenberg his latest book nonfiction, enemies and allies an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern middle east
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest, Joel Rosenberg, has released his newest nonfiction book, The First in Several Years. Enemies and Allies is the title of the book, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Well, it skillfully and clearly explains the importance of the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. It explores vital questions about the threats posed by radical and apocalyptic Islamism and the efforts to make peace in the Middle East 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. It examines the grave and growing Iranian threat and is the first book to explain the inside story of how the game changing Abraham Accords came to pass it includes exclusive never before published interviews insights analysis from his conversations with some of the most complex and controversial leaders in the world it is fascinating as Rosenberg books always are well Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times best-selling author of 15 novels five nonfiction books and nearly five million copies have been sold he's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets has been profiled by the New York Times the Washington Times the Jerusalem Post he's a Graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. He and his wife live with their family in Jerusalem. He joins us today to talk about his latest enemies and allies. Joel Rosenberg, welcome back. Georgine, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the program. Absolutely. Well, it's always a thrill when we hear a Rosenberg, <laughs> Rosenberg book has come out, and before the ink is dry, we're trying to arrange an interview. So I appreciate the time that you have taken mm, to to join us here today. Um, we are in the in the middle of a, an evacuation, if you will, from Afghanistan that has left many Americans. In the uh, on the eve of the um, September 11th, 20th anniversary, wondering where we stand as a nation, what's likely to happen in the Middle East. Let's begin where your book begins in the first part, the threats that we have faced and may face in the future. What are the most serious threats that we face today in the Middle East, particularly given what's just happened in Afghanistan?
3: Well, I hate to say this, Georgine, but, uh, but we better start with the... The, the central threat here, and that's President Joe Biden. And by that, I mean the threat in the Middle East that, that, that we have to fear and we have to deal with is radical Islamism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the, the worst thing that you can do and the central theme of enemies and allies is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it right? We were blindsided by Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. We were blindsided by Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda 20 years ago uh, Saturday. But we all as Americans have been blindsided now by a president who has surrendered uh, to a radical Islamist terror regime. We spent 20 years, almost 2,500 American courageous men and women fighting at almost $2 trillion. And the country was stable. So the, Afghanistan had been won. Now, to be, it's Afghanistan. I've been there. I've spent time with the tribal Muslim leaders there. I've spent time with Afghan Christians on the ground there. It's not Paris. You know, it's not like liberating Paris from the Nazis, and then you're, like, sitting at a cafe saying, oh, this is lovely. This is Paris. It's Afghanistan. I get it. It's not pretty. But it was stable. American soldiers and people were not dying. And, and the, the President Biden walked in, pulled out the critical Jenga stick, and the whole thing has collapsed on the 9 11. Now, when you have someone who completely doesn't get it uh, in the White House, this is incredibly dangerous because while the Taliban is bad, if, if Biden can't deal with the Taliban, how is he going to deal with the nuclear apocalyptic? Tyrants that are in Tehran—that's what terrifies me, um, and I—I I can't say I'm surprised, but I'm horrified and angered. And I, I, you know, oh my God, we have a president who who just surrendered a two trillion dollar, twenty-five hundred soldier and marine investment.
2: Yes. What in the world is he doing? Leaving our equipment behind and our people behind as well. Now, you made reference to Iran, and uh, Iran is a is, is an existential threat, not just to the United States, not just to Israel, but among Muslim nations with whom uh, leaders you have met. Uh, talk a bit about Iran and the role that they are playing in destabilizing the region, while at the same time uh, contributing to some of the, the Arab and Muslim nations seeking peace.
3: Well, that's right, and what Enemies and Allies does is I, is I... I take you inside the palaces and the presidential compounds in the most powerful uh, American allied countries in the Middle East. Obviously, Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Ruby Rivlin, but also the Saudi leaders, the Bahraini leaders, the Emirati leaders, the Jordanian leaders, the uh, Egyptian leaders at the top, like kings, crown princes, presidents and prime ministers. And I ask them, what do you think about Iran? Let me give you and – they, and they spoke to me on the record. This is the only book of its kind. There's not a single book out there where an author could spend hours and hours and hours with the main leaders in our alliance. And all of them made it clear that they worry that American leaders, not all of them, but, but, but many, don't understand the threat from Iran. Uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, said the supreme leader of Iran is the new Hitler. Now, you would expect that from me. <laughs> You'd expect that from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But Saudi Arabia is, you know, the fountainhead of Mecca and Medina. It's the, they're the caretakers, the custodians of Islam in the world. They, you know, uh, on 9-11, 20 years ago, Osama bin Laden, a Saudi. 15 of the 19 hijackers, Saudi. So here's the head of Saudi Arabia telling me a Jewish evangelical Israeli sitting in the palace on the record, that Iran is so dangerous and it's being led by the new Hitler. It gives you a sense. I totally agree with him, by the way. And this is and to summarize it in one phrase. What I fear, what uh, 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 sorry, uh, Netanyahu fears, what MBS fears, what everybody fears is a nuclear nine eleven. Mm. And God forbid Biden get blindsided by
2: that. Mm. Talk a little bit about the Russian-Iranian axis and the potential of Turkey joining that alliance.
3: Well, that's interesting, right? Because so for the last 20 years, there's always been a risk that Iran was going to get nuclear weapons, right? But and so a lot of people say, Look, Joel, haven't you said every now and then or quoted people say, you know, they're just a few years away? Well, that's true. Why haven't they gotten it? Why hasn't Iran gotten the bomb yet? Well, because bad things seem to happen to their nuclear scientists you know they don't they just disappear or they die mysteriously like turkey i don't think i recommend that you go into the life insurance business in iran (laughs) if you're trying to sell policies to the iranian nuclear scientists because they just don't last that long uh their equipment blows up their computers malfunction what's happening uh United States, Israel, the Arab countries are secretly sabotaging and perhaps even assassinating a lot of these leaders. That's what slowed this down. I say that as the prelude to your question, because what's happened is, and I describe this in great detail Mm -hmm. in the first section of Enemies and Allies, what Iran has done has decided we need to build alliances with America's worst enemies, Uh, Russia, a nuclear power, China, a nuclear armed power. North Korea, a nuclear armed power. Turkey, which is not exactly a nuclear armed power, has the largest military in Europe. And that's what is happening. Iran is building these close ties with people they totally disagree with ideologically, politically, and have had huge conflicts with with historically. But they all hate America. They all hate the West. And they're all banding together in incredibly dangerous Alliance, and that's something that I, I don't have people talking about. They talk about Iran almost as though Iran's operating by itself, mm-hmm. but it's Putin, Vladimir Putin in Moscow, that's selling Iran nuclear technology that has sent Russian nuclear scientists to work in Iran's uh, illegal nuclear industry. Uh, it's Putin who's selling advanced weapon systems to Iran and running political interference at the UN for Iran. So Iran's not just not trying to do this by itself. It has major players on its team and we need to wake up and understand what's going on.
2: We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book Enemies and Allies an Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Some fascinating conversations he has had with world leaders. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest book just released, Enemies and Allies. Now, we know what happens in the Middle East, for better or for worse, affects the entire world. Rosenberg, in his book, says uh, that he takes you inside the royal courts and capitals and introduces you, the reader, to the most powerful figures in the region. In the second half of your book, The Opportunities, you share some of the encounters you have had with the Saudi crown prince, with the United Arab Emirates. Crown Prince, with Egyptian President Abdul, with President Donald Trump, Jordan's King Abdullah, with uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, the U.S. Secretary of State, former CIA Director, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and more. This is really an, um, an amazing list of who's who. Can you kind of walk us through how these, enc- I mean, you're an evangelical uh, man with a Jewish background, how these encounters began. I think it started with the, um, uh, the Prince uh, Abdullah, Jordan's... Uh, king abdullah
3: yeah that's right georgie and you remember from a number of years ago i had written um, a, a trilogy of novels in which isis the, the terror group uh captures chemical weapons in syria and that then starts planning attacks against the united states against israel and against jordan and in the course of those three novels uh, uh isis plots the assassination and tries to assassinate uh, king Abdullah of Jordan, and blow up his palace and take over his kingdom. Now, what I did was, he, he, King Abdullah is such a fascinating figure. He was the former head of special forces. He was a commando. He never planned to be a king, uh, but he, he, he wanted to be in the military his whole life. His uncle was the crown prince, but at the last minute, the, his father, King Hussein, made Abdullah the, the, the crown prince, and he became the king when the, when the king died. So what happened? I made him a character by name in my series. Now, that's not the brightest move, perhaps, <laughs> Georgine, <laughs> if, you, if you live across the river from a man who, you know, you're, you're in the novel, people are trying to kill him, and they're blowing up his palace. Now, what happened is, one of his advisors read the book, one of the books, and, and then gave it to the king and said, Your Majesty, you have to read this. And he said, why? He said, because you're in it. He said, what do I mean, it looks like a novel, a political thriller. He goes, yeah, but you're a character in the book. He's like, what? So he takes two days, and he reads the entire novel, and rather than banning me from the kingdom forever, <laughs> Georgie, which he really could have done, he invited my wife and me to come for five days to get to know him and his inner circle. And I tell this story in the book. It's so fascinating. When we When we had lunch with him, we had lunch, we had dinner, we we went to a military training exercise with him, he put us in his own helicopter and sent us all over the country to meet people and learn things, but when we had our first lunch with him, he said, you know, Joel, I was wondering where it would be fun to meet you for the first time, and I thought when I got up this morning, you know, he did blow up my palace in his book, maybe (laughs) I should bring him to the palace, and as you could see, I said, well, it is lovely, your majesty, and (laughs) And he said, I see that you made me a character, but my staff, you fictionalized their names, but I can see who's who. So I've bought copies of your book, Joel, and I've given them to my staff, and I'll, I'll say to somebody, hey, you're, this is you on page 47. You don't make it through the terrorist attack. You might want to read that. <laughs> just a very funny, interesting, moderate Muslim monarch. What in the world am I doing there? But it was a novel that actually that piqued his interest invited me in, and I said, hey, would you be interested in meeting other American evangelical leaders who love Israel, but would, but they need to understand the perspective that you have? And he said, Let, he said, let's put together a delegation together, and I'll welcome them here into Jordan. And that's what we did. And I I ended up leading six of those types of delegations to all these different countries at their invitations. And it was absolutely fascinating. And in enemies and allies, I, I tell those stories,
2: yeah, and it really is fascinating first of all, how you got there, how you gained an audience with these uh, these individuals who would not one would assume be inclined to meet with you and right. then to meet with other evangelical leaders among those um, uh, presidents and and dignitaries that you met with um, meeting with the uh, with the um, I'm, I'm, my mind has gone blank um
3: you're probably thinking of the Saudi crown prince. Thank you. That I think is exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. Yes.
2: Yeah. Talk well, a little bit about that, how that came about, and really kind of the, the prelude to uh, the the notion of peace with Israel came up long before it was a popularized subject across the globe.
3: Well, that's right, because, because I, I actually have to start just slightly back before that, because we went to the United Arab Emirates and we were the first Christian delegation ever to be invited to meet with the Crown Prince there whose name is Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ. And in the course of our conversation with him for 2 hours, you know, it wasn't a 5-minute photo op or a cup of coffee, it was 2 hours together with him. And he's, and I said to him, "Listen, you need to understand something about evangelicals." We love Israel, you can't shake us on that because, you know, because the way you didn't have a peace treaty at that point with Israel, I said, we we love Israel theologically. It's, it's in our theological, biblical DNA. So it's not political. So you just need to know that. Now, the second thing you need to know is that Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. So we, we do love our neighbors and we don't have an exact plan how to make peace with the Palestinians, but but we want you to know it's not a zero-sum game. And third. We're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we're looking. It's been a long time since an Arab leader made peace with Israel. Who's going to be next? And he, MBZ, leaned forward and said, it's going to be me, Joel. Hmm. I'm ready. We said, what? And so we ended up having this fascinating conversation. Now, that conversation at the time was off the record. So we had this huge headline. United Arab Emirates is going to make peace, but we couldn't come out and say it. And we kept our word to him. And and last August, a year ago August, sure enough, MBZ uh, working with Netanyahu and President Trump announced that he was making peace with Israel. And I was at that signing ceremony at the White House on September 15th of last year. And so that set into motion us going to Saudi Arabia, where the Saudis are not yet ready to make peace with Israel. But I think they're actually weighing it. And you look at their actions— they didn't. They didn't put the kibosh on for countries making peace with Israel last year. They could have, right? They could have thrown sand in the eyes, you know, throw a monkey wrench into the system. They didn't. In fact, they publicly praised these four countries. What's more, they're allowing Israeli planes to fly over Saudi Arabia for the first time in history mm-hmm. to get to the United Arab Emirates. And third. Crown Prince MBS, with whom I had not just one meeting, but on two trips, he invited me, hours and hours with him, and even more hours with his inner circle. He had a a secret meeting last December with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, Israel's uh, Secret Service's spy chief, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I can't tell you the details of that trip, but I can tell you that these signs are public and slightly private evidences that the Saudis are moving. They're moving towards seeing Israel not as an enemy, but as an ally. And I'm telling you, these are game-changing developments in the Middle East.
2: Absolutely. And this is the only book that tells the story. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what role would you say Iran plays in that decision to Consider or, or at least move in the direction of uh, considering peace with Israel. Is it fear of Iran? Is it a recognition that peace is in their best interest? What's the combination of things that that would lead um, this leader to consider reconciling to some degree uh, with what had been their enemy?
3: That's a great question, Georgine, and I do, I do deal with that um, at, at length and I, in the book, and I and I'll just say this. I think there are multiple factors. First, um, you know, MBS, just like these other leaders, they're much younger. They're, they used to be mm-hmm. Arab leaders, you know, or, or like Soviet leaders, you know, they're in their 80s or whatever, and they're, they're just from a different era. MBS is young. He's trying to change his country's economy and society. He wants women to drive. He wants them, people to go to the movie theaters. He's open. There's never been movie theaters in Saudi Arabia in 50 years. So he's making all these social changes. He wants to be a country where you'd want to come visit. You'd want to come and to invest. So there's partly that dynamic. He wants to be a Muslim who likes Christians and Jews and welcomes them to the palace and welcomes them to the kingdom. So that's real good, and it's never happened before. But the larger issue, as you say, is Iran. Ultimately, Saudi Arabia has to figure out what the others are deciding, which is, Is Israel an enemy, like we've fought for the last hundred years, or are they an ally? And as President Biden retreats and abandons the Middle East, um, then the question is, if America's not going to be here to help us against Iran, maybe maybe the Arab world needs to join forces with the one country that has the will, the, the motive, and the means to defend themselves, ourselves, as Israelis, against this Iranian nuclear threat, because Iran could, if they get the bomb, create a second Holocaust. And so I think the Saudis are actively weighing this. Could I tell you when they're going to make their decision? I can't. But I'm praying for peace, and I'm watching very closely.
2: We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, another must-read, very timely book, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. We need to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour, but we'll be back with more Joel Rosenberg. You're
1: listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back. Joel Rosenberg is my guest. He has written a book, Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction, and unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's based in Jerusalem. He skillfully and clearly explains the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent, yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. Uh, He continues the conversation we began in the first hour of today's program. This is such a fascinating book, and as we are just days away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11, as you talk about Saudi Arabia, there are questions being raised about the role they played in uh, 9-11 20 years ago. In fact, um, uh, 9-11 families have asked the president not to attend events over the weekend uh, until it's made clear what role the Saudis played in all of that. Your thoughts on uh, the role that they might have played there and where they stand 20 years hence?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh,
2: you know, Georgina, I have not seen any
3: solid evidence that the, the Saudi government has actively or even passively played a role in, in planning and orchestrating and assisting and aiding and abetting Al Qaeda in any of that uh, attack. Um, just the opposite, I think you'd have to say, you know, the Saudis, uh, you know, we were their biggest purchaser of oil. And so it would be not clear why the Saudi government would send, encourage, assist uh, terrorists to go blow up their number one economic partner and ally. And don't forget, it was U.S. forces who, you know, uh, saved Saudi Arabia when Saddam Hussein was invading Kuwait and was getting ready to invade Saudi Arabia. We sent a half million soldiers to the region, and, and many of them were based in Saudi Arabia, to protect Saudi Arabia. So just to be clear, there's the, did they have the means to do it? Yes. Did they have the motive to do it? No, they did not. Now, that being said, uh, what, what Saudi... Arabia's government was guilty of was allowing a a, a a climate to fester in the mosques, in the schools of hatred for Jews, hatred for Israel, um, a deep seated negativity towards the West, even towards America. You know, so the government was pro American, but there was but violent or let's let's say at least extremist Wahhabi Islam was being taught in the schools, and in the mosques. And the Saudis didn't crush that, didn't deal with that. Now, Mohammed bin Salman is doing that now. He's fired more than 3,000 clerics who are extremists and won't change. He's changing the textbooks to get rid of the anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, anti-Western language, which is super important. Um, He's welcoming Christians and Jews into the kingdom. So I think there's a sea change of positive reform going on. But believe me, Saudi Arabia has a long way to go. I don't want to, you know, paint too rosy a picture, mm-hmm. but it's the most significant change in the history of Saudi Arabia and it's going in the right direction. I think we should encourage it, um, not um, castigate it and isolate it like President Biden, who has called Saudi Arabia a pariah state, even though he's dealing with Iran, whose president is on our U.S. sanctions list, for murdering 30,000 Iranians. So what in the world is going on here?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Now we sort of alluded to this in our conversation earlier uh, on the program, but let's talk about the Abraham Accords. At the time uh, it, it took place, um, the media here in the U.S. was loath to give uh, President Trump any credit for a role that he might have played in all of that. Uh, there've been, uh, there had been talk of a Nobel Peace Prize, although it's unlikely because he's Donald Trump that that uh, would have taken place. Talk a little bit about the Arab Accords and whether or not it was a big deal or not.
3: The Abraham Accords, is they are a huge deal. And not only President Trump, but um, his team and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and UAE uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, who, as I told you, told me two years before he did it that he was going to do it, mm-hmm. and he did it. And the Bahrainis and the Sudanese and the Marocans Look, they all deserve Nobel Peace Prizes. This is, we haven't seen an a, a Arab-Israeli peace treaty since 1994. Some of your listeners weren't even born when the last <laughs> peace treaty That was between Jordan and Israel. And before that, you have to go back to 1979 between Egypt and Israel. That takes another swath of your, your, your radio listeners like, okay, I wasn't born then either. <laughs> so what I'm saying is this is a big deal, and it came from a, an American president who, even I, I, I was a never-Trumper in 2016, and I, I, I admit that in the book, and in fact, I told the president that when I met with him to talk to him about these issues in the Oval Office, but I told President Trump, look, I, I was very critical of you because I didn't trust you, I didn't believe you, I didn't think you could make these changes, and you are doing it, and it's huge, and you know, for all the naysayers, right? President Biden says, hey, I got 50 years of experience and Trump has none. OK, but but Trump got four arab Arab-Israeli peace treaties done and nobody thought he could do it. And Biden has surrendered to a radical Islamist terrorist group that was living in the caves last month. So does experience matter or wisdom and judgment?
2: Yeah, we'll leave that a rhetorical question, but I think we know uh, what the answer is.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, look, I have still criticisms of Trump's, the yes. way he would speak or his tweets or, you know, even some of the policies, including, let's well, let's be honest, President Trump wanted to get all of U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. But to, so so I disagreed with that. And I was public about my disagreement. But here's the difference. Trump listened to his advisors. He listened to his generals who said, Mr. President, we can we can dial down the number of forces, but. Let's be honest, the situation is like pulling out a Jenga stick. You'll collapse the system if you move too fast and if the Afghanis are not ready. They're more ready than they were a few years ago, but it's still, it's still sensitive. So don't go too fast. Trump listens. Biden didn't. And I, and I think what you're watching with President Biden is he's so sure that he has all this 50 years of experience and that he's right. But what you have is ignorance of radical Islamism, incompetence in foreign policy, matched with hubris. That's a very dangerous combination. And in Enemies and Allies, I note that there are a number of good, really good things that Biden has done over the years in foreign policy, even in the Middle East. But most of his instincts have been wrong. Mm -hmm. Biden was against President Obama sending special forces into Pakistan to kill Osama bin Laden. Even Hillary, I point out in the book, supported that, uh, that hit on bin Laden. Biden was against it. Biden supported and, in fact, advocated for the complete removal of all U.S. military forces from Iraq in 2011. Most of the cabinet was against it, or at least the major ones, Panetta, uh, Bob Gates, But Biden prevailed, and 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 uh, Obama put Biden in charge of that um, evacuation. What happened in 2011? Well, we all U.S. forces left. It created a vacuum. Al Qaeda in Iraq morphed into something worse, ISIS, and began a genocidal campaign that took us almost 10 years to eradicate. But this is not Biden. Making it up as he goes along. He believes he's doing the right thing, and that's what makes him even more
2: dangerous. Mm. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East, absolutely fascinating. We've talked a lot about some of the um, incredible leaders that you have met uh, in the Middle East, but you also took delegates, uh, delegations of evangelical leaders, with you. Talk a bit about um, about that. First of all, the welcome they received, and what the purpose of those meetings were.
3: Happy to do that, uh, Georgine. This was fascinating because most of these Arab leaders, most of these countries, they had never invited evangelical Christians to meet with them ever. And um, and they asked me to do this. I, I wanted to do it, and usually it would be between 10 and 12 of us that would go in, you know, enough that um, you get sort of a cross-section. I mean, American evangelicalism, you know, and 60 million people, so it's hard to, to, uh, to do a good job with just 12 people. Um, but I tried to Get people, you know, men and women, people from different um, theological, uh, you know, sectors, um, different races, you know, people who had different angles to understand what was going on, who would ask really good questions that would really open up conversations. We went primarily to deal with religious freedom issues, you know, with Saudi Arabia, the crown prince. We said, you know, with, with all due respect, you know, you don't have a single church building that operates – on Saudi soil. Like, you know, we just came from the United Arab Emirates. They have 700 freely operating churches. In Egypt, President El sisi a devout Muslim, has built the largest church building in the history of the Middle East, and he asked us to come, and we were there when he gave it to the 17 million Christians of Egypt on Christmas Eve, like, as a present. Like, why don't you have any churches in Saudi Arabia, and can we work on changing that. You know, so we got to have those type of conversations in Saudi Arabia. They told us there hasn't been a Christian delegation invited to the palace to meet the top leadership in the entire 300 years since the Saud family has been in power. Like that's just an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. But we got to do it. So we were advancing religious freedom, advancing human rights. Um, we were advocating of course for peace with Israel And we wanted to understand how they were changing their textbooks and how they were changing, you know, how they were fighting radical extremism. And and every country had a slightly different flavor. We focused on slightly different topics, but but overall, no Christian has ever gotten to do it. And we were just totally blessed by God. I, I can't explain really, except for we prayed for these open doors, and God said yes, but I... There's no reason why a Joel Rosenberg, Jewish, evangelical, American, Israeli, I'm not a billionaire. I don't have a huge political movement behind me. I, I You know, and at one level, you'd say, well, what, what do they see out of this? What, what was in it for them? Well, honestly, they are trying to reach out to the American people, and they're trying to show the American people that they're not the... Arab readers of twenty years ago that they've made huge changes now, honestly, Georgine, there is a long way to go. Mm-hmm. we've told them respectfully but directly, listen, you're not doing good in this, this and this areas. and I say these things honestly in the book, like I'm not going to pull my punches, but I 'll do it respectfully because I want to engage them but but I'm not satisfied with the reforms they've made, but i i am I do praise the ones that are good, and there are so many that are good that most Americans don't know, 20 years ago, we were all saying, hey, where are the Muslims who we are saying, what the heck? You know, why, why aren't Muslims standing up and fighting against these radicals? And today there's a lot of leaders who are doing just that. And their stories need to be told, and then we need to keep pressing them for more
2: change. We're talking with uh, Joel Rosenberg. His book is titled Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction. Just fascinating uh, what God is doing in that region and how he has used him and other evangelicals uh, to connect with uh, leaders in the Middle East. What do you see in terms of the future of peace in the Middle East? I'm reminded of the scripture that says, you know, peace, peace. And then, you know, all hell literally breaks loose. What do you see with re- in the short term and perhaps the long term, uh, the future of peace in the Middle East?
3: Well, the Bible certainly describes in Daniel chapter 9 that there will be a deceptive, even demonic peace that will lure Israel into thinking that this is a good thing, but in fact, it'll be a trap. But, the, but Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? King David told, commanded us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes. Paul told us to, you know, as long as it depends on us, make peace with all men. So... When we pray for peace and we advocate for peace, and then is really, Erebus really peace happened, let's not be cynical and say, well, that's, that's the Antichrist doing it. I'm like, we're not, we're not there yet. And, and it's almost like praying for Peter to be released from prison. And when he knocks on the front door, like, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not really <laughs> Peter. Like, you know, I mean, if, if God answers our prayers and advances peace and security, we should be grateful and realize this doesn't happen easily. God is moving, and attitudes are changing. I'm not saying it's perfect. This book, Enemies and Allies, talks about how dangerous a moment it is because Iran is getting closer and closer to, to the bomb. But some really good things are happening, and we don't have time to get all into all of it. There's, there's more religious freedom in the region for Christians than ever in human history. And I would say that we're also seeing more Muslims and Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in human history. I mean, there's some extraordinary things, but you're not going to hear this on the NBC Nightly News. You're not going to see this um, on the front page of the Washington Post or even probably um, the, the Portland Press, or what's the, I'm not sure what the local paper is. But, you know, it's unlikely that in Seattle and Portland and some of our mm-hmm. friends up with you all have been the Northwest, that they are watching for this or caring about it. But we need to care. And why do we need to care what's happening in the Middle East? Because it's not Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) But what happens in the Middle East, as we've just seen in the last few days and weeks, it affects us all. It affects our sons and daughters who serve in the military. It affects our gas prices—it affects our budgets when we have to spend two trillion dollars to go defend ourselves. Like this stuff matters, and this is the only book that gives you an update right now. What's happening, and who's who in the in in the theater uh, of operations there? Let me take you inside the palaces and have the most interesting on-the-record conversations that a normal person like you and me is ever going to
2: get. Yeah, it really is fascinating. I don't know how you manage to do it every time, but it really is uh, fascinating. And I would encourage our listeners to to read the book, Enemies and Allies. Our brief conversation cannot um, provide all of the detailed information that you place in the book. Now, w- when your readers finish the book, what do you hope they ultimately come away with? Well, uh,
3: first of all, with a... a, a a clear sense of, of why the middle east matters and and what we should be supporting you know regardless of which party you're in you know we need democrats to be pressing biden and saying, look we want biden to succeed i look me joel a republican i want biden to succeed i i'm not a cynic i'm a critic okay i'm critical of what the president's doing just as i was critical at times of what trump did I want Biden to change. We, Democrats need to press Biden to, you know, to not go down the road of appeasing Iran, but instead strengthen our alliances with Israel and the Arab world, help the Saudis make peace. This is, these are good things, and they should be bipartisan. So yes. that's the main thing. And then for Christians, I encourage, and I explain it in the book, I would encourage you to not just, not just pray, but financially give to Christian ministries who are embattled um, on the ground in the region. My organization, the Joshua Fund, has raised more than $80 million over the last 15 years to strengthen our brothers and sisters on the ground. And that's one way that my wife and I and our team try to do something practical, not just to educate people, but to mobilize them to make an actual specific and tangible difference.
2: Well, I am so grateful for your writing, but also grateful for the work that you do and the challenge that you pose to to Christians who really do care and want to do something constructive. Joel Rosenberg, thank you so much.
3: Oh, such an honor, Georgina. I I love being with you. I I wish it was in person next year in
2: Portland. Let's let's do it. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Once again, Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies. The book is published by Tyndale House. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice
1: Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Ah, you got to love Joel Rosenberg. Great book. Uh, always writes uh, such relevant uh, information about what's going on in the world. Being an evangelical with a Jewish background can't beat uh, Joel Rosenberg. Anyway, if you missed that conversation, it started at 4:30. You can pick it up on the podcast. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is struggling to describe women in a rant during a CNN interview. I don't think it's all that hard, but I guess these days, if you uh, drink the Kool-Aid, it is. When you abandon science while trying to describe who has abortions, life becomes, well, more complicated. Uh, She told Anderson Cooper, what this is about is controlling women's bodies and controlling people who are not cisgender men. This is about making sure that someone like me as a woman or any menstruating person in this country cannot make decisions over their own body. Wow. Planned Parenthood is also struggling to avoid the word woman. So President Biden missed the deadline to provide senators with the number of Americans left behind in Afghanistan. And the Taliban has agreed to allow some 200 Americans and other foreigners to leave the country. Thank you, Taliban. Senate Republicans are demanding hearings on Afghanistan and sworn testimony from Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley. Non-copus mentis. Well, the State Department feigns concern over the all-male Taliban government. I mean, who knew? I thought when the Taliban swept in and overtook the country that they would be inviting women to come alongside them. Okay, nobody thought that, but apparently... The State Department did. Americans are being turned away from a northern Virginia hospital as Afghan refugees now take priority, which isn't a bad thing, except northern Virginia U.S. citizens are not welcome in the hospital. Well, Kellyanne Conway and Sean Spicer fired back after Biden boots Trump appointees from military panels, saying, I'm not resigning, but you should. And the White House plans to withdraw the controversial ATF nominee David Chipman, who wants to ban AR-15s. Uh, He is no longer on that roster. Uh, Warning, the next line may be difficult for some listeners to hear. If you are particularly sensitive, please step away from your radio for just a moment. The Constitution and Declaration of Independence now have trigger warnings on the National Archives site. I thought you'd want to know. President Biden announced vaccine requirements for all federal workers and more. And is it collusion? The CDC announced stricter school masking guidelines after a teachers union threat. Now, it wasn't based on science was based on a threat from a teacher's union. The World Health Organization has extended the call for a moratorium on COVID booster doses until the end of the year. Whether or not the president will heed that is yet unclear. The FBI is releasing new footage of the Capitol pipe bomb suspect eight months into their search. And 20 terrorists face trial for the 2015 Paris attack that killed 130 people. A racial incident that will be ignored by the media Again, bears repeating a white woman wearing a monkey mask throws an egg at Larry Elder, a black man seeking to unseat California's governor. Nothing to see here, folks. The Texas NAACP and UT students, that's University of Texas students, have filed a federal civil rights complaint over the racist school song. Now, I'm not familiar with it. It might be. I don't know. Just reporting. Job openings hit a new record high of 10.9 million in July. It's a good time to get off the couch, they say. Tiananmen Square vigil organizers have been arrested in Hong Kong because that's what China does in Hong Kong now. And Google's anti-racism program is considered virtuous by Silicon Valley has been exposed. Not everybody considers it virtue. Well, on this day in history, 1776, again, a triggering date for those of you who just can't tolerate history and facts, the Second Continental Congress makes the term United States official, replacing United Colonies. 1850 California becomes the 31st state of the union 1948 on this day in history the people's democratic republic of korea or north korea is declared 1971 prisoners seize control of the maximum security attica correctional facility near buffalo new york beginning a siege that would end up claiming 43 lives 2009, in a speech to a joint session of Congress, President Barack Obama calls on lawmakers to enact sweeping health care legislation, declaring the time for bickering is over. Representative Joe Wilson, a Republican from South Carolina, shouted, you lie when the president says illegal immigrants would not benefit from his proposal. It was quite a brouhaha after that. 2013, Bridgegate. Four days of vehicular gridlock begin near the George Washington Bridge when two of three approaching lanes from Fort Lee, New Jersey, are blocked off. The traffic jam is later blamed on loyalists to New Jersey Governor Chris Christie over the refusal of Fort Lee Mayor Mark Sokolich to endorse Christie for re-election. And on this day, 2014, Apple unveils its long-anticipated smartwatch as well as the next generation of its iPhone. And finally, on this day in history, CBS Chief Les Moonves resigns. This is hours after six more women accused the veteran television executive of sexual misconduct. While Republican state lawmakers who oppose abortion rights are eyeing a just-implemented measure in Texas as a model for opening a new front in the war over reproductive choice. That's interesting. And woke language. Uh, the measure that uh, took effect last week bans virtually all abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected about six weeks into a pregnancy after the U.S. Supreme Court declined to block the law in a 5-4 decision. The law doesn't make exceptions for pregnancies that result from rape or incest. Well, most uh, controversially, it allows almost anyone in Texas to file a civil lawsuit against abortion providers and those who aid a person seeking an abortion after the six week mark. A person uh, bringing suit would not have to be connected in any way to have legal standing to sue, and they could be awarded at least $10,000 plus attorney's fees if they win. Well, that provision, legislators hope, will block abortion rights advocates from uh, challenging the law in court. They cannot bring suit against Texas because the government is not the entity enforcing the law. Well, lawmakers in other states said that they see the measure as a new approach to break what they say has become a standard legal back and forth. That's... <laughs> a Republican-led legislature passes a measure to restrict abortion rights. Opponents sue to block the measure and a federal judge places it on hold. States like Missouri that have done everything in their power to make abortion not just illegal but unthinkable are seeing another potential tool to try to be able to do that. That's a quote from Missouri State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman, chair of the House Children and Families Committee and one of the lawmakers exploring how to bring a similar measure to her state. I think this is really an interesting idea. That is really an expansion of tort law. We'll see where that ends up, and we'll follow the story. Cal Thomas points out in the matter of the new uh, law in Texas banning abortions six weeks after gestation, when a fetal heartbeat can usually be detected by a vaginal ultrasound. Suppose the headlines uh, had uh, had been different, instead of the words like "most restrictive in the nation." Which was the headline in the Wall Street Journal and Supreme Court refuses to block Texas law, which is what The Washington Post reported, along with four stories splashed across the front page of The New York Times that seemed to be written from the perspective of pro-choice writers. What if the headlines had instead reflected another point of view that took the side of the babies and the women who carried them? Those headlines and stories might have read Supreme Court decides to protect babies, recognizing Thomas Jefferson's writing about endowed life coming from God. Of course, Thomas Jefferson is disfavored and I may have triggered you. I apologize. Or if that's too long for the headline writers, how about Supreme Court takes side of the unborn? Well, might that have changed the perception about abortion by people who are on the fence or conflicted information, including sonograms for abortion minded pregnant women? has been shown to change minds, so has compassionate counseling and adoption services at pregnancy help centers. Much has changed since 1973 when a court majority found in Roe vs. Wade that a penumbra was written in the Constitution, which translated into a right to privacy so that a woman could legally terminate her pregnancy without interference from anyone, including the father. Well, since that ruling, the right to an abortion has been extended to include second trimester abortions and to cover babies born alive after an attempted abortion. Virginia Governor Ralph Northrum, a Democrat and a pediatrician, has suggested that a baby who survives an abortion should be kept comfortable and resuscitated, and then a discussion would ensue about between the, the physician, rather, and the mother does this not suggest infanticide the answer if you're wondering is yes the definition of penumbra is revealing the partial or imperfect shadow outline the complete shadow of an opaque body that's what it means if that sounds unclear when applied to the Constitution, that's because it's unclear when applied to the Constitution. Then Justice Harry Blackman, who used the word clearly, was not a textualist in the way Justice Antonin Scalia was. It appears he read his own bias into the Constitution when he could find no justification for abortion elsewhere. Judges reading into the Constitution their own biases, even prejudices, had long been a problem. It is a power the founders never intended and the courts and especially the Supreme Court to have. Well, the Texas law will still be changed in other ways, as will a Mississippi law the Supreme Court has decided to hear this fall. That law, if passed, would ban most abortions after 15 weeks. National Right to Life that tracks figures from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention And the Guttmacher Institute estimates there have been more than 62 million abortions since 1973. I know it's easy to just move on, but 62 million abortions since 1973. And the number of abortions each year has been steadily declining. Many women have said they regretted that decision to have that abortion. Many uphold that difficult decision. Anyway, it seems we long ago shifted from doing what might be best for others to doing what's in our own self-interest perhaps a reflection of the spirit of the age the question remains is abortion the cause of or our increasingly decadent culture or a reflection of it i think the answer is probably yes you're listening to the georgine rice show we'll be back to wrap things up
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: hey we're back you're listening to the final segment of the georgine rice show by the way, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Joel Rosenberg earlier in the program, you can check that out on the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Just go to kpdq.com, look for the Georgine Rice Show page. Well, as we prepare to mark the 20th anniversary of the horrific terrorist attacks on our homeland on September 11th, 2001, we take stock of the past two decades, of all that we have won and all that we have lost. We've seen Americans come together in unity in our darkest hour. We have foiled many such attacks since, and we've watched our country shine as a beacon of freedom and hope like never before. Kay Cole James, who's the director of the Heritage Foundation, says this, but it has not come without tremendous, heartbreaking cost. As the nation stood to defend its liberty, its values, and its way of life, hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters risked their lives in that defense, and thousands paid the ultimate price for it. More than 3,600 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines from at least 32 countries, including nearly 2,500 Americans, were killed serving in Afghanistan to make America and the world safe. Well, these heroes kept terror at bay and kept America free. It's a debt we can never repay. So on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, may we do everything we can to honor what they have done. Our world today has grown no less dangerous. Indeed, the threats we face multiply by the year. Evil doesn't sleep and its forces do not rest. Most immediately, we face a resurgent threat from transnational terrorism, a threat that was has found new life after President Joe Biden's ill-advised and poorly executed withdrawal from Afghanistan. Sadly, his actions have opened the door for a more dangerous future. On this 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, the Taliban will have more territory control of Afghanistan than it did in 2001. The Taliban will also be better armed than it was in 2001 with billions of dollars in U S military equipment and weaponry that the president had the military leave behind during his evacuation. And worse yet, now the Taliban will have hundreds of American hostages that it didn't have in 2001. Now I hope and pray that number will dwindle. I hope and pray they will be evacuated along with our Afghanistan allies Who are entitled to be free hostages. President Biden abandoned hostages. The Taliban will use to barter for more money and weapons to use to commit more terrorist attacks. New territory, new weaponry, hostages, and the fact that the Taliban was able to release thousands of fellow terrorists from American prisons in Afghanistan as they overtook the country will make Afghanistan a new hub for terrorism and more of a threat than it was on September 11th, way back 20 years ago in 2001. There will also be a major recruitment drive for jihadist groups, as nothing attracts new followers like the success the Taliban has just handed, uh, was just handed, I should say, by the most powerful nation in the world. Terrorists are now welcome in Afghanistan again, and terrorist groups will be flocking there. A few days ago, Osama bin Laden's former head of security, uh, Amim al-Haq, he returned to Afghanistan after being gone for the past 20 years. Now that President Biden gave up our counterterrorism operations there, he says we can instead strike terrorists using our over-the-horizon capabilities. Unfortunately, that doesn't match reality. It's difficult to carry out airstrikes or drone strikes when you don't have the intelligence and assets on the ground telling the military what to hit and what to avoid hitting. Also, because of the botched pullout, not only have American... Um, uh, Adversaries been emboldened, but America's friends and allies are seriously questioning America's resolve for future conflicts that we may find ourselves in. In the past two weeks, our, the Heritage Foundation experts have spoken to nearly 20 diplomats, including at least four ambassadors, and all have expressed the same concern about this administration and the stunning lack of American leadership under the president. The alienation of our allies couldn't come at a worse time, as America also faces rising threats from an increasingly adversarial Chinese Communist Party, from Vladimir Putin's Russia, and from a nuclear-armed Iran that has for years pledged death to America. However, the course the, that the president, Joe Biden, has set for America is not inevitable. On September 11, 2001, the American people showed that we are resilient, determined, and strong. The question is, are we still resilient? Are we still determined? And have we squandered our strength? At this moment in our nation's history, not just on this day, but every day going forward, we must resolve to stand unified against the forces that would seek to destroy us. And we must say to the world that the United States may bend, but we will never, ever break. I say that today with less confidence than I might have said it just a short time ago given decisions that have made most recently. But it does give us a great deal to pray for, to be thankful for, and looking forward to prepare ourselves to be salt and light, if you will, with the challenges that lay ahead. So it is a a challenging season uh, that we find ourselves in. James Madison said in the Federalist Papers way back in 1788, How would a readiness for war in time of peace be safely prohibited unless we could prohibit in like manner the preparations and establishment of every hostile nation? Well, given events of uh, recent days, particularly looking toward Afghanistan, it's a, a valid quote. Since September of 2001, we have been reminded on a daily basis, monthly, maybe yearly, to remember those who... Paid the ultimate price on 9-11, perhaps unwittingly given uh, the way things unfolded on that day. Most Americans who are 10 or older in 2001 remember exactly where they were on that horrible day. After the first attack and then watching the second attack happen live, we took the me- a measure of um, uh, that were prescribed protocols for such a situation uh, in, among civilians in that time. Children were in elementary school at the time. Uh, weeks later, we were still wondering what was to happen until the president stood on the ruins of uh, the World Trade Center and announced that uh, our voices would one day would soon be heard, which was the case. Well, that resulted, of course, in a number of things that included our our foray into Afghanistan. But well, we certainly need to continue praying for those who are left in Afghanistan Those who are nationals, those who, because of their support of the U.S., uh, were entitled to and promised by the United States that they could exit the the country and we would facilitate that for U.S. citizens who remain in the country and are at the um, mercy of, if a word can apply to the Taliban, they're at the mercy of the whims of a terrorist organization now headed by individuals uh, who are on the FBI's most wanted list, who have bounties on their heads as being among the worst terrorists in the world and that's where we stand today well the anniversary the 20th anniversary of 911 is coming up we're going to focus some of our time and attention on that tomorrow in fact we have a Jerry Stewart special on 911 i hope you'll join us uh, for that we're out of time i want to thank James Blend for producing Clark Hilton who's um, absent today for engineering and I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day have a great night
1: thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast